Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Senator Manchin throwing a grenade into the Democrats' hopes and Biden's plans for a slimmed-down Build Back Better reconciliation package passing with his necessary vote, saying today, quote, To be clear, I will not support the reconciliation legislation without knowing how the bill would impact our debt and our economy in our country. Joining us to discuss this latest blow to Biden, who is twisting in the wind as his poll numbers plummet, is Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C., He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and he writes the popular economics blog Beat the Press, where his latest article is New York Times Spreads Fox News-Style Misinformation on Family Leave and Child Care. We'll assess what possible path forward there is as Manchin makes his displeasure clear at House Democrats warning them, quote, the political games have to stop. Holding the bipartisan bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for the reconciliation bill. Then we'll examine the oral arguments today before the Supreme Court hearing on the Texas abortion bill, which seem to indicate that some of the right-wing justices will allow abortion providers to challenge the vigilante-based law designed to avoid judicial review and circumvent federal law. Joining us is Aziz Huck a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He is a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of How to Save a Constitutional Democracy and his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. We'll discuss his article at the Boston Review, Who Owns Our Data, and his op-ed in the Washington Post, What Texas's Abortion Law Has in Common with the Fugitive Slave Act. Then finally, we'll speak with Natalie Jackson, the Director of Research at the Public Religion Research Institute, where she has just conducted a new polling survey, Competing Visions of America, an Evolving Identity or a Culture Under Attack. We will discuss the poll's alarming findings that one in five Americans believe the core tenet of the QAnon conspiracy that the storm is coming and one in six believe our government is controlled by Satan-worshipping pedophiles, while 30% of Republicans agree that violence might be warranted. And before we go to our first guest, while background briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now, Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. 
He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest article is New York Times Spreads Fox News-Style Misinformation on Family Leave and Child Care. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, today at a press conference, uh, Senator Joe Manchin threw a grenade into Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan, referring to the reconciliation package, which has now been dwindled down to one point from six trillion down to three point five trillion, and now one point eight or one point seven five trillion. And in regard to that package, slimmed down as it is, Manchin said today, to be clear. I will not support the reconciliation legislation without knowing how the bill would impact our debt and our economy in our country. And we don't know that until we work through the text. So this seems like a blow to Biden, particularly, I think, if tomorrow, if Terry McAuliffe loses in uh, the governorship in Virginia, the press will be declaring Biden dead on arrival when he comes back from the climate talks in Glasgow. Yeah, well, the press has been beating up on Biden ever since the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, That was a a policy that really shook the foreign policy consensus in the United States. And uh, the media, I think, took that as a signal that, okay, we're going to yell about everything in the world. And basically, that's what they've been doing for the last three months. And obviously, it's, you know, Biden's taken a hit on this. And it is a problem. Our media is, uh, they have a clear bias here. And they're trying to seem to take revenge on Biden. Now, practical matters, the McAuliffe race, from what I'm hearing, I've been reading about it. I'm not in Virginia. I know people are. If anything, it looks like he's going to win. If uh, uh, Youngkin wins, he'll be over critical race theory, which is a little bizarre because critical race theory kind of has nothing to do with anything. It's not being taught in the schools, in other words. That that's. But, you know, they'll they'll jump on that and say it's a big defeat for Biden. Um, as far as uh, mentioned, obviously, this is a complication. People had assumed, uh, I think most people had assumed, I should say, that he was on board with the, the general contours of the uh, reconciliation package, which people, again, uh, most people, I think, had assumed was pretty much in place. Now he's saying that's not the case. Um, so does he want something else? I mean, the, the Democrats clearly have been very solicitous of Manchin because they know they need his vote. So the question is, what's he doing here? I assume there's something he wants. Uh, I think he does want to get a bill through. He he has indicated that. I mean, it would be a little weird. He had sent this letter to Schumer back in July laying out his terms, and it seems he's largely getting his terms. So the question is, you know, why is he now doing this? I'm assuming that Schumer and Biden will be able to bring him back in the fold. That may not be right, but I, I don't think his behavior is consistent with the idea that he just wants to blow it up. Well, he's talking about gimmicks and the debt. And just to quote him today, as more of the details outlined in the basic framework are released, what I see are shell games and budget gimmicks that make the real cost of this so-called $1.75 trillion bill estimated to be twice as high if the programs are extended or made permanent. Now, it's true, there are gimmicks in this, in terms of the pay-fors, but that's because both Manchin and in particular Cinema won't allow the Democrats to repeal the Trump tax cuts, to raise money on the rich and particularly on the billionaires, and to increase the corporate tax. So these 
to a shilling for corporate America. I mean, it's worth noting that Joe Manchin was an early member of ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a, uh, a Koch Brothers front, pro-business Koch Brothers front. And he's because his daughter is famous, for, infamous for being in charge of a big pharma company that wanted to jack the price of EpiPems up to the point where they were prohibitive. So, I mean, I could go on, but basically, this is the height of hypocrisy, isn't it? These people are saying they're worried about the debt and the deficit, and they're the ones that are standing in the way of getting the revenues that would pay for these programs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mention, I mean, mention to his credit, he's been honest about this, honest in his corruption, if you want to say it. But I mean, he's he's all, all along said, I'm not on board with a real big package. And, and just to be clear, I mean, because this is something that I think is confused a lot of people when uh, it's talked about in the media, they were talking about the 3.5 trillion. It was over 10 years. So that was 350 billion a year. That's about 1.6, 1. 1.7% GDP. That's not trivial, but it's less than half of the military budget. So in, in a lot of accounts, I think they thought it was called the massive spending bill. Um, so it was, it is substantial, but it's not, you know, absurd. But in any case, so Manchin has all along indicated he was only willing to go so far, um, raising concerns about the deficit. Uh, again, that's, you know, how could he, well, to their credit, they, he, they at least opposed the, the Trump tax cuts. But in any case, yeah, it, it, it is hard to see. Cinema, though, I is just an even bigger, whatever you want to call her. I mean, Manchin, we're lucky to have Manchin as a Democratic senator in West Virginia, because if he weren't there, we'd have a Republican who's on the other side. Uh, Cinema, Arizona's a swing state. The other senator's a Democrat. Uh, Joe Biden carried it, not by a huge margin, but he carried it. Um, she was not elected as a conservative. In fact, she was elected saying that she was going to call for negotiating drug prices, that we'd pay less for our drugs. Um, now she turns around and says no. Um, she voted against the truck tax cut. Now she's for it, you know, apparently, because she doesn't want to reverse it. Um, so that's the one that I find more incredible. And Manchin, as I said, he put his cards on the table back in July. Cinema was playing games and she did something I've never seen any politician do. She announced that she wouldn't be around to negotiate in August because she had vacation plans. Usually you catch politicians taking vacations when they're supposed to be working. She was instead boasting about it. So uh, I think she's been the bigger issue here. Right, but uh, Manchin did last Tuesday at the Economics Club in Washington, D.C., boasted how he killed the possibility of the IRS having the ability through banks to have more disclosure on tax dodges. So there again, he's against revenue raising. Um, yeah, well, that this you know the the effort to go after you know tax dodgers is. It's kind of incredible because all these people want to be law and order. But when you talk about making people pay the taxes they owe, um, they somehow, you know, become soft on crime. Uh, you know, I pay my taxes. I assume you pay yours. I want the people who are making millions and billions a year to pay theirs. But somehow if we give the IRS the ability to to collect those taxes, uh, that's that's some outrageous infringement. You know, I, I that's hard to swallow. I mean, I've I once I got because I never deliberately cheated on my taxes, but I've had the IRS and actually have gone both ways. But they say, oh, we looked at your tax return, you owe another $300. Well, you know, if I underpaid by $300, I'm going to pay it. You know, if, if I could see they made a mistake, I'll tell them. But, you know, but point is, they could review my taxes and say whether I owed, paid too little or too much. 
they should be able to do that with, with uh, Jeff Bezos and the Koch brothers and everyone else. And again, I'm speaking with Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest article is New York Times spreads Fox News-style misinformation on family leave and childcare. And we're talking about how today at a press conference in Washington, D.C., Senator Joe Manson threw a grenade into Joe Biden's uh, Build Back Better plans, saying he's not going to support the reconciliation package. But on the other hand, he clearly wants the House to go ahead and vote on the so-called bipartisan package, infrastructure package that Sinema and he negotiated and with which the majority of the Republicans in the Senate voted for, well, not surprisingly, because it's a very Republican bill. Uh, there's very little in it for the cities and a lot in it for rural states. So today, Manchin said, the political games have to stop. Holding this bill, meaning the bipartisan bill, hostage is not going to work in getting my support for the reconciliation bill. So he's clearly miffed at the House Democrats. So what's the next move? I mean, the, obviously there's no trust between the House Democrats and Biden and Cinema. They don't negotiate with them. Cinema doesn't even talk to the press. At least Manchin makes himself available. So clearly the House Democrats feel that if they go ahead and vote through the bipartisan infrastructure package, then <laughs> there's no incentive for either Manchin or Cinema to even consider this package, uh, this second uh, 1.85 or 1.75 trillion reconciliation yeah, well, package. Well, Manchin and Cinema are going to have to agree to something, and you know Biden and Schumer are going to work on them. And you know if they just say no, we're not voting for anything. Well, that's where they are, and that's you know nothing you can do about it. But the House Democrats are not going to the progressives. At least. They're not idiots. They're not going to approve the. They, they could that infrastructure bill is sitting there. Manchin may not like it, but he voted for it. It's approved. So it's up to the House. They could do that a week before the election in November of or I guess October of two twenty two, and just say okay, now we've approved it. It would be better if it was sooner. But the reality, and I've heard some idiocy saying, oh, we wouldn't have these supply chain problems if they just approved it. No, not in this planet. None of that money will be spent in 221. A lot of it won't be spent in 222, even if it were passed two months ago. So, you know, so anyhow, the bill's sitting there. The, the progressives in the House are losing nothing by waiting. And it's incumbent on Schumer and Biden to get get mentioned, get cinema to say what you're going to approve. And if they're going to say nothing, well, then they go, okay, well, you wasted our time. That's great politics. It's a good show. What and uh, whatever, we'll move on. You know, if we want to, we'll approve that bill. If we don't, we won't. But the game playing is on the side of mention cinema. And just remember, Biden originally proposed this as one package. And then he said, okay, we're going to separate it. And maybe mentions too old to remember, too young, however you want to put it. But he said that very explicitly. I'm not signing one without getting the other. And Nancy Pelosi said, we're not going to approve one without approving the other. So the idea that there's some game here, they're the ones playing the game. It was always intended to be one package. And if there are two bills, that's fine, as long as they're both approved together. So the game is on the side of mention in cinema, not the progressives in Congress. Right, but it's so clear that 
they're hurting Biden, these two. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. He's tanking in the polls. I think the American people expect a leader who's decisive and able to get things done, and the perception is that he can't even control his own party. Well, he can't control... You know, look, I, I can't speak for what people know, but the reality is the party, you get someone elected and they have a lot of independence. It's not like in many European parties where they could tell people you're going to vote or you're, you're out, you're out, of, you know, we'll remove you from parliament. Um, that's not the case. And, and Manchin more than anyone, he knows there's nothing Biden could do to him. You know, he can't, is he going to primary him? I mean, there, there's no way on earth it went a primary against Manchin, but even if by some miracle, a Democrat were to primary Manchin and beat him, they'd get killed in the general election. So they'd just be giving a seat to a Republican. That'd make no sense. So there's not anything Biden could really do to mention. He could maybe with cinema, but I, as I say, I don't. Cinema seems to get off on being in the limelight and playing games, and you know. So what can you do to someone like that? Uh, she doesn't seem to give a damn. No, and she's uh, getting a huge war chest together, and she could run as an independent in 2024, or end up on corporate boards and be lavishly rewarded, which gets to the point that I want to ask you about, Dean, and that is, does this mean that the establishment has a, always has a backup plan with these so-called moderate Democrats? You know, remember how in 2009, Obama tried to get his health care bill through, was painfully delayed, uh, along with his uh, stimulus package as well, by his own side, by Democrats. He waited around for Republicans. Republicans are always against it. So if you can peel off a couple of Democrats, like Manchin and Cinema, or back going back to 2009, the senator from Nebraska who was a, who was a executive in health insurance, they're the ones that tend to sabotage. So, is that what's going on here? That well, plan I don't think B it's a question of always... off. It's they, they were never there. Uh, you know, Manchin. I don't know if it's a press conference or he just you know was stopped in a hallway and talking to a reporter. And he said, you know, look, I'm not a liberal. You want to pass liberal legislation, elect more liberals. So it wasn't a question of peeling off. He was never there. Right. So, you know, it's it's just wrong to imagine that, OK, the Democrats have a majority, in this case, the barest of majorities. Um, therefore, they can control the Senate. Therefore, they can control the House, because a lot of these people aren't they aren't the least bit progressive. They aren't even particularly centrist. I mean, you know, in a lot of cases, they're just corrupt. Um, so it's not a question of peeling them off. They were never there. I see. So I should apologize to the establishment? <laughs> well, we have to recognize what we're dealing with. You know, someone could be a Democrat, but that doesn't mean they support uh, lower profits for the drug industry. It doesn't mean they support higher taxes for rich people. And again, in Manchin's case, he's never made any bones about that. Well, Dean Baker, I thank you for joining us here today. Thanks a lot for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Dean Baker, a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest article is New York Times spreads Fox News-style misinformation on family leave and childcare. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the oral arguments today before the Supreme Court on the Texas abortion bill, which seemed to indicate that some of the right-wing justices will allow abortion providers to challenge the vigilante-based law designed to avoid judicial review and circumvent federal law. I have always thought that 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aziz Huck, who is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror, and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. And he has an article at the Boston Review, Who Owns Our Data?, and an op-ed at the Washington Post, what Texas's abortion law has in common with the Fugitive Slave Act. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aziz Huck. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's an interesting coincidence, I guess, in a way, that you should be writing about the Fugitive Slave Act, particularly the 1850 version brought forth by Senator James Mason of Virginia, who sponsored the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, because it's become an issue in terms of the book Beloved by Tony Morrison, which is basically the political issue upon which this governor's race is being run with the Republican suggesting that the Democrats are imposing critical race theory on the parents of the state and the delicate minds of the children of the state. But in reality, in 1856, Margaret Garner escaped from her Kentucky plantation into the free state of Ohio and she was the daughter of her owner, and she'd been repeatedly raped by his his brother, her uncle, and she gave birth to four children. And when she was cornered by the slave hunters operating under the Fugitive Slave Act, she killed her two-year-old daughter and attempted to kill her other children to spare them her fate. And then, of course, she was returned to slavery and later died of typhus. So I guess the example that you're giving here is is in terms of the idea of vigilante justice and uh, that there is a history in this country that laws have been enacted to license private parties to suppress the constitutional rights of others. And you're arguing here that that is what's going on in Texas with its anti-abortion law, SB 8. Do you think that any of what you're writing here, particularly in the, the Washington Post, was it in any way reflected in any of the arguments today before the Supreme Court? There's certainly a sense among the justices that something is amiss with Texas's law. I think that the focus has been so far on the way that the Texas abortion law uh, is purposefully designed to avoid constitutional review in federal court and to ensure that uh, abortion is not available even if the the Supreme Court decides to stand by Roe v. Wade. Um, In the Washington Post op-ed you mentioned, I'm getting at a slightly different idea, which is that uh, there's a long history of not quite vigilante justice, but um, legislators creating legal mechanisms for private parties to invoke the power of a court as a way of suppressing someone's constitutional right. Now, the Fugitive Slave Act is a good example of that, um, not only because, or not perhaps most importantly, because of its effect upon freed slaves or slaves who had fled from the South, 
but its well-recognized effect upon free blacks who were uh, who had never been enslaved, and who, because of the structure of the law, um, had to fear the prospect of being seized by uh, a southern slave owner's agent, brought before uh, a uh, a court or a commissioner, and in a a, a very uneven-handed proceeding, uh, sent south. Uh, so the idea is that the even the, the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, even though it was uh, designed allegedly to allow for the rendition of freed slaves, in fact, in operation, it also led to the um, transfer south of many actually free persons. And that was probably what the law was intended to do. Uh, and, and in that application of the law, it was clearly a means of suppressing the constitutional rights of free blacks, rights that everyone uh, recommended. Uh, and, and the basic gist of the piece is that there's a long history of these laws being enacted from the antebellum period up to the present day. But there's also an analogy with the financial incentive. You can get $10,000 for ratting you out your neighbor in Texas, uh, even if it's true or not that they've had an abortion past uh, six weeks when most women don't know that they're pregnant. And in the case of the Fugitive Slave Act, the commissioners that were set up in these sort of kangaroo courts, they got $10 when finding for the owner, but only $5 if they ruled for the enslaved person. Absolutely. The Fugitive Slave Act was asymmetrically organized to create to make it easier for slave owners to win than uh, slaves to be released or free black persons to be released. Um, in the same way, SB 8, the Texas law, creates uh, an imbalance in the sense that it imposes an um, affirmative obligation on a defendant, for example, a physician, to demonstrate facts showing that they fall outside the scope of the statute. For example, that they had done the requisite medical testing and the procedure fell into one of the narrow exceptions that are uh, available under the law. For example, the the, uh, the very poorly defined medical emergency exception. Um, there's another parallel, though, that the Fugitive Slave Act allowed a slave owner not just to uh, obtain uh, a a slave or a free black person. It also had a remedy for damages. Uh, and so, for example, there were, there's at least one case in which a, a farmer in Ohio who gave uh, a group of fleeing slaves water and food, essentially he saw them on the, uh, on, on the road and, and took pity on them based upon their uh, uh, parlous physical state. That Ohio farmer was subject to a damages action by the slave owner under the Fugitive Slave Act and, and um, had to pay a hefty financial price for helping another human being in need. That is exactly the same structure as the Texas abortion law, which doesn't just sweep in physicians. It doesn't just sweep in people who work in Planned Parenthood clinics. It covers anyone who knowingly or not aids and abets uh, an abortion. Uh, and that, that, that includes the, uh, the Lyft or Uber driver who takes a patient to a clinic. Uh, it would include uh, an employer who pays a woman uh, the funds that eventually are used to obtain an abortion. Um, it could include even a spouse or a parent who provides emotional support. So in this way, the, the Texas law, just like the Fugitive Slave Act, 
strikes directly at the heart of the emotional relationships that make most people uh, human. And again, I'm speaking with Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. And he has an article at the Boston Review, Who Owns Our Data? And an op-ed at the Washington Post, What Texas's Abortion Law Has in Common with the Fugitive Slave Act. Well, I brought up the Toni Morrison book because of the, it's based on a real story and <laughs> our discussion indicates the, the horrors of, of our history, which, of course, now even history is being challenged. But in terms of what happened in the Supreme Court today, what seems to be happening here is that the justices are denying the Biden administration any kind of standing here, but they seem to be giving standing to the abortion providers in Texas. Is that what you're taking away from it, Aziz? I, I should say that I did not listen to all three hours of the uh, hearing, but my read of the commentary and uh, simultaneous blogging uh, is, is, that, is that at least if one goes by the comments that are made by the justices, that seems to be the direction of the court. It's worth saying that the court has two, probably three people on it who are profoundly ideologically committed uh, anti-abortionists for reasons that have nothing to do with the Constitution. That's true of Alito. It's true of Thomas. Uh, it's almost certainly true of Gorsuch and, and almost certainly true, I should also say, of uh, Barrett, although with Barrett we have uh, less direct evidence than with the others. So, you know, we have four people who are you know, for reasons quite above and beyond their judicial philosophies, ferocious religious opponents of abortion. So I think that one would be very unwise to look to their votes, uh, even with respect to the question of whether there is someone, either the, the federal government or uh, private plaintiffs, who can challenge the Texas law. But how can these justices who say that they're neutral, that their personal biases don't affect their judgments and rulings, how could they not deal with what seems to be obvious to me? I thought that the principal role of jurists is to uphold constitutional law, and when a, a constitutional law is being violated and citizens' rights are being taken away, that should be unacceptable to anybody in the judiciary, particularly at the Supreme Court level. Well, I think it is unrealistic to say that jurists can leave their personal or ideological baggage at the door. I think that that's true um, even of jurists who call themselves originalist. One way in which we see this is that the uh, jurists who most loudly proclaim their originalist credentials switch those off. Uh, in cases where originalism would lead them to an outcome that they would not like ideologically. So I'll give you two examples of that. One is affirmative action. Uh, and the second is the application of the Fifth Amendment's taking clause to regulation. Right? Both of those are issues on which conservative justices have powerful ideological concerns. Uh, the ideological concerns don't cut in the same way 
as their um, originalist evidence. The originalist evidence in those cases is largely ignored. So, so ideological baggage can't be kept out of the courtroom. Uh, it, it is part and parcel of adjudication. The question is how honest you are about it uh, and how uh, reflective and careful you are in, in uh, ensuring that it's, it, if it's driving the opinion that at least it's on the surface. Um, I, and, and I think that the, the failure is one of, of candor. Um, I, I do think that the Texas law is, is unusual in that it, it is a direct effort uh, to undermine the authority of the federal courts to speak to the content of constitutional law. And even where justices have um, been ideologically sympathetic to a particular legislature's purpose, um, they've tended to resist the idea that the legislature can achieve that purpose by undermining the court's authority. There's, there's a number of cases, both from the civil rights era and from the 1990s, that one could cite for this idea. Uh, but what's surprising is how little discomfort the, the justices, uh, at least in oral argument, demonstrated over the, to use a colloquial phrase, punking off their uh, authority or their asserted authority to say what the law is. And it's pretty clear in this case that this Texas law is is written in a way to evade judicial review and to thwart the supremacy of federal law, as you write, Aziz. And I think the example of the extraordinary, I mean, you would think that (laughs) if you're on the Supreme Court, you're there to protect federal law, not to see it um, circumvented and eroded and, and punked, as you described it. But it seemed to come up today when they talked about the possibility of clerks refusing to put these cases on the dockets. And is that a viable approach here? Um, it seemed to get lost in the weeds. I, I think what matters at the end of the day is, for the purposes of the Texas law, whether a federal court has the opportunity to rule on the constitutional challenge in a way that meaningfully translates into relief for women and for those who uh, provide abortions on the ground. Uh, There's a number of different ways in which that might happen, a number of different elements of the Texas law's theory uh, that might be uh, repudiated. But I think the particular pathway, whether it's clerks or whether it's a general declaration of unconstitutionality without exceptions, what matters at the end of the day is that people feel free to exercise their constitutional rights. The pathway you get there is secondary to that goal. So just in the last couple of minutes, if if we could just switch gears a little, because I mentioned your article at the Boston Review, Who Owns Our Data? And uh, you make the analogy with Upton Sinclair's novel Oil, how there was this sort of race in the 1920s in California to exploit the oil boom and that this, I'm quoting from your article, this rapacious quest for capitalist profits from oil, Sinclair decried, was crippling the bodies of men and women and luring the nation to destruction by visions of unearthed wealth and the opportunity to enslave and exploit labor. And you suggest that uh, we have a sort of a different kind of oil rush today in this surveillance capitalism uh, where these vastly powerful, in fact, the most powerful corporations on the planet their business model is, in fact, surveillance capital, capitalism. Absolutely. The basic idea here is that we have 
we hear stories week in, week out about the harms that Facebook and other social media platforms inflict upon our democracy, the mental health of young girls and women, et cetera, et cetera. And proposals to intervene or to address those harms are often focused upon the structure of markets or the scope of liability protection for uh, social media platforms. To my mind, those proposals are, they may be effective in some instances, but there's an element of superficiality about them. The reason that Facebook has the amount of power that it does is that it, it, it exercises effective control over personal data that you and I and others create. Under long-standing U.S. law, it is not at all clear that Facebook has ownership, that it actually it has title as well as possession of that data. And so what the, the Boston Review piece, and there's an, uh, an article uh, that underlies it that's available on SSRM, try and do is to say, hey, wait a minute, this entire economic model is premised on an assertion of property rights by private actors like Facebook over an asset that as a matter of law is in the public domain. And the article in the Boston Review is an, and, and, and the underlying academic article is an effort to, to think through, well, what would it mean for us as a democracy to exercise public control over the data that we actually publicly in many ways produce? Right? And how can we do that without creating unacceptable privacy risks for individuals. Uh, now, my view is that there's a way to do that. And my view is that uh, addressing the fundamental question of ownership is a stronger way of addressing many of the ills in our present uh, platform economy than many of the proposals that are presently uh, being circulated. Well, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, that you can exploit something that you don't own? I think this is this is both extraordinary, but also typical of the way that capitalist markets have developed over time. If one thinks back to the emergence of capitalism in America, uh, we were just talking about the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, the emergence of capitalism in America, in the in the at least in the 1800s, turns upon the exploitation of human capital that rightly did not belong to anybody but the persons actually engaged in the labor. It, it, it was uh, the extraction of value from something that really should not have been uh, the object of extraction. You can extend that point to natural resources. You can extend that point to the kind of labor that historically women disproportionately have done behind at home, behind the scenes in terms of care and nurturing. In all sorts of ways, markets are built upon the exploitation of resources that are public or otherwise thought to be beyond um, uh, property regimes or individual property regimes. So in this way, Facebook isn't doing anything that's unusual. But again, just because there's a precedent for it doesn't mean that it's morally acceptable or, or without uh, crippling social harms. Well, just in closing, the, your article indicates that there is a solution here, right? 
that this information should be a public trust and that municipalities could, in fact, cities could control it because they right. control the means by which the surveillance is gathered. Right. That, that's the underlying solution, isn't it? Or at least a underlying solution. It is a underlying, it is a solution. I, I think that there are efforts now underway, both in European cities and in a couple of big American cities to say, hey, if you're going to come in, big data company, and gather locational data, gather activity data in our jurisdiction, we, we're going to exercise a great deal of control over how that data is used and exploit it, right? This is, this is primarily being done with respect to rideshare companies, but the model of saying, look, this data is being produced by our citizens through their work, and, it's, and, it, and it has a kind of public character that makes it appropriate for um, an exercise of state control. And we need, to, be, we need to, to, to take care to ensure that you're not abusing uh, the trust of the people who are creating the data. You're not doing things with it that they would not uh, approve of. And that and the, and the, the public is getting a fair remuneration for the work that goes into creating that data. So, so the idea is for cities, and obviously cities are a you know are, are an attractive uh, place to start regulating because they're not uh, gridlocked in the way that the national government is. Um, this is a way forward for cities to exercise a measure of control and to take back uh, some of the uh, the overweening influence that social media companies and other big data companies now exercise over our lives. Well, Aziz Haq, I thank you very much for joining us, and uh, I recommend your article in the Boston Review, uh, which we <laughs> we haven't had time to really get into the details, but it's definitely something that our, our listeners should turn to, and I thank you for joining us. That, thanks for having me, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Aziz Huck, who's a professor of law at the University of Chicago. He's a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and is the co-author of Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror and How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. And his latest book is The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. And he has an article at the Boston Review, Who Owns Our Data? and an op-ed at the Washington Post, What Texas's Abortion Law Has in Common with the Fugitive Slave Act. We're going to take a brief station break, and we're back looking to a new poll that finds one in five Americans believe the core tenet of the QAnon conspiracy that the storm is coming, and one in six believe our government is controlled by Satan-worshipping pedophiles, while 30% of Republicans agree that violence might be warranted. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Natalie Jackson, the Director of Research at the Public Religion Research Institute, where she has just conducted a new polling survey, Competing Visions of America, an Evolving Identity or a Culture Under Attack. Welcome to Background Briefing, Natalie Jackson. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And our country is becoming more and more divided and the discourse is becoming more and more poisonous and there's even 
talk. We've we've seen an incident of insurrection on January the sixth, but now there's talk of armed struggle. You could make the case that there's a virtual secession underway, where a lot of the red states simply don't want to live with the blue states, and it's a very alarming situation, which only people like China's dictator Xi Jinping or Russia's dictator Vladimir Putin are celebrating. But nevertheless, inexorably, this is happening to this country. And I guess the purpose of your study is, is it a wake-up call that you're offering here? Well, we didn't necessarily go into it with that in mind. What we wanted to do was design a study that would show the full snap view of what America looks like through Americans' eyes, through different groups, different religious groups, different racial and ethnic groups. What we found, though, was this increasingly divided uh, country where one part of it is actually quite disturbing to look at. You know, one of our key findings is 30% of Republicans think violence might be necessary to save the country. And, you know, we've seen that that's not necessarily just words for some of these people. Well, recently, the German chancellor who's retiring, Angela Merkel, said rather kind of plaintively to Vice President Harris, what's happening to America? So it seems that people abroad are looking at this country undergoing a very sort of dangerous, if you will, change. Is there any way for us to sort of step out and look at ourselves as the way that foreigners see us? I think we absolutely should, because some of the things that have been happening in the country, January 6th being the prime example, you know, how would we have looked at that in America, in the United States, if that had taken place in Germany, for example? You know, we would we would have looked on that as a, a very bad sign. And I think putting ourselves in those shoes to, you know, look beyond this ingrained belief we have, we, we show this in the report as well, this ingrained belief that the U.S. is such an exceptional place, once we get outside of that, we can see the problems a bit clearer. So some of the findings, I'll just sort of rattle off some of the bigger findings. The poll found that three out of 10 Americans, 31%, believe the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, including two-thirds of Republicans and a whopping 82% of those who trust Fox News more than any other media outlet. And that one in five Americans believe in the core tenet of the QAnon conspiracy, that there is a storm coming soon, while one in six believe the United States government is controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking ring, and that 18% say they agree with the statement that America has gotten so far off track that true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. That It doesn't get any more alarming than that, does it? So what explains the anti-intellectualism and the alternative reality that these conspiracy theorists represent? Well, one theory that pops up and has popped up on my social media today is that these people are 
trolling. In other words, they're answering our surveys not the way they actually think to be intentionally alarmist. I don't think that's the case. Um, we saw clearly, again, on January 6th, that people are willing to resort to violence. What seems to be causing these issues is a disappearing world. So we find these views among Republicans, among white Americans, among those with out of college education. What seems to be happening is as their world becomes more multicultural, more multi-religious, a lot of this has white Christian roots as well. As the world changes and as the country changes, they see their way of life as under threat. They see other religions, other races and ethnicities as threatening. And the reaction to that is to try to defend your way of life. And that's where we see these attitudes, such as questions we asked about, are foreign influences a threat, are outsiders a threat? I feel like a stranger in my own country. You know, that, that's why we ask those questions, is to really tap into that identity that feels threatened. And that's what we're seeing really take hold here. And again, I'm speaking with Natalie Jackson, the Director of Research at the Public Religion Research Institute, where she has just conducted a new polling survey, Competing Visions of America and Evolving Identity or a Culture Under Attack. So since this phenomenon is relatively new, these toxic, destructive politics that we have that encourage polarization and trolling. I don't know if you watched the recent congressional hearings with the oil company executives, but it was, you know, they used to actually do serious stuff 20 years ago. And even in those 20, 30 years ago, senators, uh, Republican and Democratic senators were friends and their families got together and over barbecues and whatever. They don't do that anymore. They don't even share the same elevators. So we know that there's this increasing toxicity so I don't know what began this shift. It must have been there under the surface all along. And a lot of analysts have suggested that it was Donald Trump who became the catalyst who drew all of this stuff out from under a rock, all of this ugliness because of his divisive nature and the fact that, you know, he says he's all about America first, but clearly he's about Donald Trump first and He's still around. He lost an election, but he now controls one of the two parties. And he's busily trying to rewrite history over what happened on January the 6th. And unquestionably, without getting into a diatribe about how much personally I find him appalling, there's just objectively speaking, he is a very divisive figure. Yes, I would agree with the analysis that says, you know, this has been boiling under the surface. There have always been people who held these beliefs in the United States, um, particularly when we talk about racial issues, you know, those have never gone away. They've simply been a little bit more under the radar. When Donald Trump crashed onto the scene in mid-2015 announcing his run for president, he immediately started saying the things out loud that you weren't supposed to say out loud. And instead of 
being pushed aside and pushed out of politics for it, he was embraced. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it was name recognition and 16 other opponents for the Republican nomination. But also he attracted a solid proportion of Americans who felt very disaffected and held these beliefs and maybe had not voted for a long time, but would show up and vote for Trump. So in your recent survey, did you get the impression that the people that support Donald Trump and had did support him in 2016 and in 2020 did so out of, a, out of an alienation that even though he's an establishment figure and uh, all of his policies have helped the 1% or the 1% of the 1%, uh, he comes across as a, somebody that's going to tear down the system. And it, obviously that's very receptive to people who feel completely alienated from politicians in general, whether they be Republicans or Democrats. They feel that they've been lied to over the years, over the decades, in fact, and nobody cares about them. And you can, I think that's a, that's a fairly obvious feeling that's out there. I don't see that these people necessarily have a plan of what they want to be rebuilt, but they sure as hell want to tear this place down. Is that what's going on? There are many, many reasons that people support Donald Trump, um, starting with, you know, of course, the ones who are attracted to his core message, the ones who are attracted to him simply because he's an outsider, um, and even some who voted for him simply because he was the Republican candidate, and it doesn't go any deeper than that. I do think it's true that to some degree, they don't really know what they want to build. Um, because it's not a building effort. You know, if you look at Trump's slogan, make America great again, this is not a forward thinking plan. This is a backward thinking plan. They want to go back to a world in the 1950s where the United States was mostly white, certainly white people held all the power, um, mostly Christian, and they have this idealized view of the past that probably actually didn't ever exist, but it's what they would like to return to. So certainly there is no building involved. And of course, I think Trump himself is not interested in building anything except his own name. So the Aussie and Harriet Halcyon days of the 1950s, I mean, Ronald Reagan made an atavistic appeal back to those days, but his policies are nothing like Trump. In fact, he ran on on a platform of hope and restoring America to the shining city on the hill. The, this is a very dark vision. Remember Trump's inauguration in 2016, the incredibly dark vision he ha he gave, where Trump spoke of American carnage. So this is a something, <laughs> again, I know we've talked about there's something happened to, to shift the discourse from the light to the dark. I guess, Natalie, I'm reminded of Abraham Lincoln's call for the better angels. So is that something that's realistic? You know, there are some things where we are still united as a country, at least in theory. And those are places to start. That's where I would say our better angels lie is in the concept that um, Americans are united around the concept of 
freedom. Now we differ on what exactly that means and how to implement it. But in theory, we agree that freedom is a core principle of the country. We, we did ask that in the survey. Um, when it comes to something that we've been kind of tearing ourselves apart over lately, critical race theory, if you leave out that term and you ask people, should we teach things that show the good and the bad? They largely say, yes, we should teach our children the good and the bad of the country. Again, we differ on what exactly that means, but there are you know, kind of common ground places that I think it's important to remember they exist so that we don't fall too far down. You know, are we just in a hopeless place? Now, if right. we can't find some way to work on how to implement those things and get beyond the theory that we agree on, then we, we might be in trouble. Well, it's quite possible that uh, the Republican candidate for governor in Virginia will get elected tomorrow, Tuesday, on a lie that critical race theory is being taught in the schools where it's not, <laughs> anywhere in the country, taught in, the, in any school. So you have lies and propaganda out there, and, and your survey does identify, as I mentioned, 82% of Republicans trust Fox News more than any other media outlet. How much is Rupert Murdoch culpable for this division and segregation in this country where people are in their own kind of reality bubble? which in the case of Fox News and OAN and Newsmax and Sinclair is quite often unreal. It's not based on facts or information. But, and it's in, with Tucker Carlson, it's increasingly bizarre and unhinged, but it's being presented as fact and news. We really can't understate the role of our media environment in perpetuating these things. You know, in addition to all the outlets you just listed, we also have an ongoing debate about the role of Facebook in uh, perpetuating extremism and leading people to extremist views. And I, I think, again, we cannot understate how impactful it is that people can say, I've done my research, and they actually have. They've gone online and they've done research, but the research that they've read has been false. And the lies that are spreading unabated on the internet, uh, as well as in other media locations, such as Fox News and um, One America, Newsmax, you know, we, we really can't overstate how much that matters. Well, Natalie Jackson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate the work that you've done. And of course, it's a link is available at our website, backgroundbriefing.org. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Natalie Jackson, the Director of Research at the Public Religion Research Institute, where she's just concluded a new polling survey, Competing Visions of America, an Evolving Identity or a Culture Under Attack. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by